frankly, when we started Drip, it wasn't like I was going meeting in person with people. I was marketing the shit out of that app. I was warm emailing people in my network and saying, hey, I built this thing. If you're using MailChimp, I think this, you know, these are the differences. This is perhaps how it's a better, might be a better fit for you. But I was not doing a big hard sell and I didn't need to go build a bunch of networky fake relationships to do it. I just showed up and built a great product. Welcome back to Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm Rob Walling. And if you can believe it, this is episode 570. I think we're approaching 100 listener question episodes where me or myself and a guest answer questions from you, the listener. This is another one. We dig into some really interesting topics today. If you want to get your question answered in a future episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, you have some options. You can go to startupsfortherestofus.com. There's an ask a question link in the header. And if you click on that, we use video ask, and that allows you to click a button on your phone, click a button on your laptop, and send in either an audio or a video question. And you can obviously record an audio or video question on your laptop and just email it to us, send us a Dropbox link or a G Drive link. Those questions go to the top of the stack. We always answer those first. Or you can just email questions at startupsfortherestofus.com or submit it via our contact form. And if you submit it in text, we will get to it at some point. And I, I think we'll have time today to dig into a few of those as well. So without further ado, let's dive in to our first question. This is a video question from Hide. Hey Rob, I'm Hide. I'm a software engineer and inspiring bootstrapper. I'm currently looking for problems for customers and I was wondering if some problems were more conducive to bootstrapping than they were to, let's say, high growth startups. And then my other question is, what are some of your ways to create and maintain trust with your potential customers? Thanks. Big fan of the podcast. Thanks for those questions, Hide. I will tackle the first one first, which is, are there ideas that are more conducive to bootstrapping? And I think the way I'd like to address it is to go through ideas that I would not bootstrap that I think are too cash intensive or just are not conducive to bootstrapping and pretty much anything else that's info product course related B2B SaaS is a better option for bootstrapping. So the first one, and it's one that I see all the time is two-sided marketplace. For some reason, a lot of folks, I think it's because they use Uber and they watch the social networks and they use Facebook, they want to start a two-sided marketplace where they have to get consumers and you know some providers together. And that is really complicated and really expensive. It's very, very rare that you see a two-sided marketplace come out of a bootstrap software company. There are a few, and it's usually when they have one side of that dialed in. So if I already had a big audience of developers, I can start a job board and I can then go find people who want to hire developers because I already have that big audience. Or if I already have a big audience of designers, I mean, it's, it's the same thing, right? But trying to build both sides of the marketplace at once, I, I just usually say don't. Unless you're going to raise buckets of money, don't do it. It's kind of my, you know, it's a rule of mine. If you look at how, how they bootstrapped Uber, they didn't. They bootstrapped for the first, you know, I think, Travis Kalanick and his co-founder kind of funded it up to a few cars, a few black cars in San Francisco. 
And then they just had to raise money and expand geographically because raising money, it's too capital intensive. You have to hire people, you have to get on the ground, you have to then go find both sides of that marketplace in each locale. Very, very intense. Same thing with like Groupon, like trying to bootstrap Groupon. You and I could have had that idea 10 years ago and not raising money for that would have been very, you know, very challenging. Another type of business that is, I say, virtually impossible to bootstrap, it's possible if you do it on the side, it grows really slow over years and years and years and years, is, is a purely ad-supported one. Obviously, you can build a podcast or something, build an audience and get that ad-supported. But I'm talking about like trying to build you know, a website, a software product that is ad-supported. And if you recall the scenes in The Social Network, to refer to that movie again, there was uh, Eduardo Saverin, I believe, was Zuckerberg's co-founder. And he wanted to to have ads on the site really early on because he was saying, how are we going to pay for the servers? And at least the way it's portrayed in you know, Aaron Sorkin's rendition of, of the social network, Zuckerberg said, we're not going to do that. We're going to raise money to pay for it instead. And you know, I think to grow as quickly as Facebook wanted to and to build a social network that had no ads for a very long time and had no revenue model, same thing with Twitter, same thing with you know a, a lot of these social, like YouTube, they just weren't monetized for so long. And so you have to have some type of money coming in in order to, to fund that. But in those, it's often a winner takes all, or at least a it's a land grab. And land grab businesses, you shouldn't bootstrap because you have to move really fast. And so you want to raise huge amounts of money and get there first, right? And get the mind share. And when that network effect kicks in, eBay, Facebook, Uber, I mean, Lyft, these network effects are what allows them to now have a really big moat, you know, against competitors. But again, these days, I, I wouldn't bootstrap that. Hardware is another one. Probably don't need to address that here because we don't really talk much about hardware on startups for the rest of us. There's an interesting one that I used to think was not great for bootstrapping. And it was sales-heavy apps. Sales, let's stick to SaaS for now because that's normally what we talk about startups for the rest of us. And I used to think that it was low-touch, low-price point, and this is 10, 12 years ago, right? That those were the ones designed for bootstrappers. And what I'll say is if you're doing it part-time and you're doing it nights and weekends while you're doing a day job, I do think that's relatively accurate because doing sales to a Fortune five, even 5,000 company is very, very hard if you do have that day job and you know you want to have credibility. You're not full-time on it. And so that low touch, this is why I talk about stair-stepping, right? Go build your Shopify add-on, your Heroku add-on, your WordPress plugin, your info product, your course, and get enough money that you gain the experience and the confidence and eventually you can buy out your own time. Then you're full-time, then you can do what you want to do, right? You could do a sales-heavy, sales more sales-led organization, as the kids are saying these days. So all that to say, I used to think that like sales heavy was not a great fit for bootstrapping. But what I think I've come down to is it's not a great fit for part time, right? If if you can go full time on it, I've actually seen the majority of the SaaS companies that I see succeeding. And I don't mean 95%, but I'd say 60-70% do have a heavier sales component, because they can have higher purchase price and higher annual contract value. And that leads to usually to faster growth for a company. And the last thing I'll say on this point is if you want to build a software product, you want to build a SaaS company, it is very hard to bootstrap it if one of the founders is not a developer. Because if you have to hire developers, you need money. And I view bootstrapping as truly not self-funding, right? Self-funding is, hey, I have $100,000 in the bank. I'm not going to go raise funding. But that's not, I don't know, that's not really strictly bootstrapping either, right? Self-funding is possible or raising funding if you need to go hire someone to, to build your app. So I don't, I don't want to give the impression that without a developer co-founder, you can't build and launch a SaaS product. It's just 
makes it hard. You're doing it on hard mode. And, you know, there are examples, many examples of it, actually. I think, I don't remember what the numbers are, but I think it's maybe 10 or 15% of companies that make it into Tiny Seed don't have a developer co-founder. It's, it's a super minority, you know, 10 to 20%. It's somewhere in that range. But there are examples like Craig Hewitt from Castos. And how did Craig get Castos built? Well, he started a productized service doing podcast editing. He built that to tens of thousands a month in revenue. And then he used that to hire a developer to build a product. And me, you know, when Drip first started, I was a solo founder. Derek came on as a founder later. He was originally a contractor, then he was W2. And then it got to the point where it just made sense to have him come in and have equity. But in those early days, I wasn't writing any code on it. So how was I able to pay Derek to write the code for Drip? Well, I had a prior SaaS app called Hittail, and that was throwing off twenty dollars to $30,000 a month net profit. It was an amazing step to business. I guess no, that technically is step three business. Anyways, it's on the stair, it's on the stair step, step three, I believe. And I self-funded Drip in essence for, you know, until we got to the point where we we were at break-even. So that's just another thing I'll throw out is that without a developer, you do have to either raise money early or usually have to figure out a way to have money to to pay a developer. So I hope that was helpful for you, Hide. The other question he had was about creating and maintaining trust with potential customers. So, I mean, there's a few ways to do this, right? It's commonly done with content. You present yourself, hopefully you are an expert in your field, and that you are either blogging about it, you can have a podcast about it, you can you know, create some type of content, you write a book. I know that Jason Cohen, when he was starting a smart bear, he wrote a book on the same topic that a, you know a smart bear was was focused on, which was like code. I don't remember what it was. What is a smart bear? It's like code collaboration or code security or something like that. And he wrote a book, and then he would sell it or even give it away to folks, and it would be up on the shelf. And then when he'd go on sales calls, they would pull it down and point at his name and say, "You wrote the book on this." And how hard is that to make a sale, right? So I'm not saying you need to write a book, but I will tell you, it certainly helped me as well. I've written three books now. One of them co-written with my wife. It definitely lends credibility to us when we're talking to, you know, whatever, investors or people who are outside the space. And we say, look, I run this podcast that has 570 episodes now, and you can go listen and hear if, you know, if I know what I'm talking about in essence. So anyways, content is a great way to do that. Also, if you get folks to opt into your mailing list or you have a way to, to contact them, you can similarly through content, you can send them an email drip sequence or otherwise engage with them. But it's allowing folks to see who you are as the CEO and founder and, and I mean the professional side of you and to, to acknowledge your expertise and to be able to experience that. I think it's harder to do with if you do it just as the company, because people don't want to follow companies, they want to follow people. Um, and that's always the challenge, right? Is how much of yourself do you want, you know, branded on the company versus the company itself. But that's a probably a conversation for another day. So thank you for that question. I hope it was helpful. Hey, Rob, my name is Zach. I'm wondering what suggestions you have for founders out there who are battling depression and other mental illnesses. This is a tough one. And it's, it's not one that I have a great answer other than to get help. Um, it's to go listen to the Zen Founder podcast. So my wife is a clinical psychologist, has a PhD in psychology, and she consults and advises founders, CEOs, and high-functioning individuals. And she has dealt with both founders who are just struggling because it's hard and founders who 
you know, have an actual diagnosable mental illness. Usually the moment you have a diagnosable mental illness, you need a, a licensed therapist, psychologist, psychiatrist, whatever, whatever it is you're going to seek. You need someone licensed in your state. And so that's usually the difference. But she talks a lot about this and how to deal with it. And if you read The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together, which is the book that Sherry and I collaborated on, we dig into some of this, um, some of these topics. There are no easy answers other than don't deal with it without getting help because there is help out there. And whether help is means you get on some medication that helps with it, whether you go to therapy, whether you try alternative therapies that you feel like are going to be appropriate for you, whether you figure out, you start messing with your sleep. And by messing with, I mean, trying to improve the quality of that, whether you start an exercise regimen, like these are the, the fundamentals. If Sherry were on here, she would say, look at your sleep, look at your exercise, less time in front of screens, more time, you know, building relationships and get help, right? Talk to a professional, someone who knows what they're doing. And so that is my advice. There's, it's always the, you know, how do I lose weight? And it's like, exercise a lot and don't eat And nobody wants to hear that, right? They want to be able to do whatever they, what they mean is how can I not change anything, you know, and get better. And I'm not, Zach, I'm not saying that's the question you're asking, but I'm just comparing the answers are usually stuff that we know, but it just, it's hard. It's hard to make that change. I know, you know, I've gone through some tough times as an entrepreneur and I was always resistant to going out and getting help because for me, it was like, well, I don't have time for that. I'm too busy for that. And in, in fact, I went through months and months of feeling like crap because I just wasn't willing to go make that change. So anyways, I hope, I hope that helps. It's, it's a really good question and one that I'm happy folks are talking about these days. You know, I think honestly, Sherry was the one who kind of pioneered that in our space, in the bootstrapping space. And there really weren't many people talking about it in venture funding. And I, I know that given the toll that it takes and, you know, there's, there's been a number of suicides in the venture funded founder community, I do think that this is becoming uh, a more common topic and one that, that I think should be addressed so it's not so taboo. So thanks for that question, Zach. Hope it was helpful. Our next question is also from Zach. Hey, Rob, this is Zach. I'm wondering what advice you have for founders out there who are more introverted and have difficulties going out and getting in front of people and rubbing elbows and making sales. I like this question because I'm introverted. Some people are shocked when I say that, but you'll notice that if I'm in a room with a lot of people, I tend to talk for a few minutes and then I go sit down somewhere because I need a break. And so what I did was I built a lot of businesses that didn't need me to be super outgoing. Now, an introvert can still be good at sales, right? And, and I don't think that you going to a conference and rubbing elbows is necessarily necessary um, in order to, to build a great business. There are plenty of businesses you can build by becoming a great developer and a great marketer. And you don't need to do a bunch of sales calls, right? I mean, we can look at Derek Reimer, founder of Savvy Cal. We can look at, um, frankly, when we started Drip, it wasn't like I was going meeting in person with people. I was marketing the shit out of that app. I was warm emailing people in my network and saying, hey, I built this thing. If you're using MailChimp, I think this, you know, these are the differences. This is perhaps how it's a better, might be a better fit for you or Infusionsoft or whatever the other competitors were. But I was not doing a big hard sell and I didn't need to go build a bunch of, uh, you know, networky fake relationships to do it. I just showed up, built a great product and tried to present a, a better offer to people. And I did a lot of, we did a lot of inbound too, right? Inbound marketing while the sales folks who are listening to this are, I'm sure are saying, oh, it's a cop out, you know, don't, don't go create content when in fact, you know, you can do cold email or whatever, which is not untrue, but there are ways that you can be an introvert and still 
make sales, right? And that's why a lot of, I think a lot of developers and myself included, especially my earlier businesses, it was a lot of content that I would create presenting what I knew such that I wasn't trying to prove stuff to anyone when I would meet them or when they would email me. They already knew me because they've listened to this podcast. They read my blog, they read my books, or they come to a microconf, right? And, and that allows me as an introvert to then be able to build relationships, right? To build a network. So there's a lot of ways, there's a lot of ways around it. I mean, I think if you're just going to start like a step one, small software product, you really don't need to be hardcore about making sales. If you do want to build something that's going to be, you know, five, 10, 20 million in ARR, then you either have to decide, hey, I am going to do this and I'm going to, it's self-improvement and I'm going to get better at this, which is totally possible. And I see some really great developers who are introverts learn sales because sales is not what we think it is. Sales, as Anar Volset says all the time, you're like a high-priced consultant trying to find the best answer, trying to find the best solution for the person on the other end of the line. But you're high-priced, but you're not getting paid. You know, you're just super knowledgeable of the space. There were a number of sales calls. I just called them, oh, these are demos. It's a conversation where someone would tell me what they needed. And I'd be like, you know what? I actually do think MailChimp might be a better fit for you, given that you're not going to use any of our automations and, you know, it's a little bit cheaper or whatever. That was it. I felt like me becoming a salesperson or, or needing to do sales was just being pretty honest about things and knowing that we had a great product helped, right? I wasn't trying to trick anybody. I wasn't trying to say anything that wasn't true. When I said, I believe Drip is the best product on the market to do this, it was true. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't exaggerating. So I think that helps kind of gaining the confidence and realizing that, look, it's not black magic. It's not some mystical art. It really is just having conversations and not selling from your heels, you know, not being cautious. I'm going to make everybody mad. I'm going to, I don't know, just you got to kind of, kind of go with it. So in conclusion, you can either kind of build a business and I think, you know, will you hurt your growth? by building a business around solely your desire not to do sales or whatever. Yeah, but it's a light, right? It's it's bootstrapping, it's lifestyle business. So you can do kind of whatever you want. Or if you decide, hey, I want to grow really fast and get bigger and get big quickly, then you either need to to get over it, you know, and learn those skills. And you can follow folks like Steli Efty. Um, you can look at what Damian Thompson is putting out. There's a lot of pretty good sales folks. There's some great books on the topic as well. Or you can find a co-founder who maybe is is better at that side of things. I mean, I'll be honest, I had the idea for Tiny Seed back in, it was probably 2011, 2012, where I said uh, accelerator for bootstrappers, Y Combinator for bootstrappers. But I didn't want to raise a fund. I didn't want to manage a fund. <laughs> I didn't want to deal with all of the headache that goes along with it, right? And so it wasn't until after selling Drip, where I was looking at my next act, that Anar Volset and I started talking, and I knew that he was not only good at that stuff, because I can figure it out, right? I'm enough of an operator that I could figure it all out, but I just wouldn't enjoy it. And so that's his role in Tiny Seed. This is often referred to as your zone of genius. It's what you're really, really good at, better than most, and you really, really enjoy, you know, and you can be happy doing. And so I think it's just all about knowing yourself. And I think we learn so much more about ourselves as entrepreneurs. So it's a great question. Thank you, Zach. And our last question for the day is from Lou Doan, and he says, Hey, Rob, great episodes as usual. I'm curious, why is there not a standard slash boilerplate operating agreement for co-founders similar to docs like the safe from Y Combinator? 
most operating agreements have the same components, ownership structure, capital contributions, budgeting management, and legal decision-making, etc. The terms can be fill-in-the-blank, like X equity vested over Y time. Are there enough nuances to require a lawyer to draw up a new agreement for each startup? Thanks for all you do. It's a good question. I don't know why YC hasn't put one out. I do know that effectively Stripe has done this, right? That's Stripe Atlas. Although I'm trying to think if they, I don't know if they ask you how many founders. I've never done Stripe Atlas because the once it came out, the next company we started was Tiny Seed and you can't use Stripe Atlas for fund formation. So Stripe Atlas, I believe, has that. They do C-Corps and LLCs in Delaware. I remember pulling a partnership agreement off a service like Rocket Lawyer or Lexgo, L-E-X-G-O, is, they do it in Latin America. They're a Tiny Seed company. So these do exist. I think that they're around, but the fact that Y Combinator or an equally large kind of brand hasn't put them out, that maybe we don't hear about them enough. You know, maybe maybe that, yeah, I think the safe is not popular because the safe exists. The safe is popular because YC put it out, right? And their brand equity behind it made folks start to adopt it and say, okay, this is, this is you know, how we want to do things. And to the question of, you know, why is there not a standard boilerplate operating agreement? You'd have to find someone where it's worth doing. I, like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if YC has their own internal one that they let folks use. And releasing that to what, how does that benefit them? You have to think of who's going to put this out. Do they want to assume, is there liability towards, you know, publishing this online? And what is the benefit? Do they get the brand equity like they got from the safe? And to that question, I'm not sure. But I do think there are definitely some reasonable options out there. You know, if you go to a lawyer, it's not like they drafted up from scratch. They have their own kind of standard boilerplate operating agreement that they are going to then ask you a few questions. You're going to tell them and then they're going to go fill it out. So while that involves a lawyer and is a little more expensive, that is usually the way these things go. So thanks for the question, Lou. hope that was helpful. And that's all the questions we have time for today. When this episode comes out, I will actually be on stage at MicroConf Europe Growth in lovely Dubrovnik, Croatia. If you're there, I hope to connect with you. And if not, head to microconf.com and uh, get on our mailing list to hear about you know upcoming events. We have a virtual event called MicroConf Remote that will be in, I can't remember, producer Sanders going to kill me if it's in November or December. But our MicroConf Remotes have had great responses because it's not sitting staring at a Zoom room for five hours a day or whatever. We made the last one super unique. The last two have been really unique. One was filmed basically in, in a live studio. It was uh, socially distanced, but got a lot of great comments on that. And the next one we used Gather.Town, which is a platform where you can actually wander around and you have an element of the hallway track. You just run into attendees and it opens a little window and you can chat with folks. There was a scavenger hunt you know, in gather.town, which is like a, it's like an eight bit, I don't know, it reminds me of like Legend of Zelda or a game like that. Yeah, so much fun. So if you haven't been to a MicroConf remote, check them out. They're entry level. It's inexpensive. You don't have much to lose. And, and we do focus them more on, you know, the earlier stage folks. But then we are looking at MicroConf growth in Minneapolis uh, next April. That'll be our in-person event. And I'm pretty stoked that we've been able to pull off these four events that we have, you know, here in, in September and October, Portland, Austin, Boston, and now Croatia. Just to me, just being able to get in the room safely using all the precautions, uh, masked plus, you know, vaccine requirement, just all, you know, all the stuff to make sure folks are safe. But to be able to do that with other entrepreneurs is 
it's such a need for myself. And it, what I keep hearing from attendees is like, this is a need, you know, that they're having too. And it's COVID has been rough on everybody. And, you know, not being able to get together for almost two years is, is isolating in so many, both professionally and, and personally. And so it's great to see folks who are coming out to microconfs. And um, as I said, head to microconf.com if you want to know about upcoming things that we're working on. The State of Independent SAS Report is another one. We are going to be doing that for the third year in a row, gearing that up here pretty soon. So thanks so much again for joining me this week on Startups for the Rest of Us. And I'll be back in your earbuds again next Tuesday morning. Mm-hmm.